Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with me, Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO of NatureServe. And we're uh, going to reprise an episode today that we recorded with Michelle Nyhaus last year, but we're going to bring you some new information. So we've got Michelle on the line again, and uh, we're really excited to have her with us today. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Sean. Nice to see you again. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you said nice to see you because we're going to see you in person very soon, we hope. Um, so Nature Serves uh, biannual or biennial conference, Biodiversity Without Boundaries, which is our gathering of conservation professionals from all across North America who talk about the conservation status of uh, species and conservation efforts to protect endangered species, is happening in March in Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, anybody's welcome to attend and uh, join up with all the conservation professionals. And this year, uh, Michelle is also going to come and be our keynote speaker which we're really excited about. So we'll meet in person, finally. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to give you a chance to tell, to preview people what you uh, plan to talk about at, at BWB. Well, fingers crossed that you will all get to gather in person in Pittsburgh. And um, I know from experience just how delightful and rewarding it is to actually see your colleagues again <laughs> after so long in virtual communication. So I hope that... Um, Many people will will get to be able to be there, and I hope that I will also get, be there physically with you. And what I am planning to talk about, and what I, I'm looking forward to talking about, is is how the NatureServe network and what the partner organizations do fits into the history of conservation. And I think that as a practitioner of conservation on the ground, it's it's so easy to see what what you don't know what you haven't the data you haven't collected and how much you know how much remains to be known um but it's easy to forget just how far that the conservation movement has come in terms of understanding biodiversity understanding how many individuals of different species are out there and what they need to survive and you know just from learning a bit about the history of conservation from my book i have that has that is one of the lessons that I have taken with me is that it wasn't so long ago that we had no idea what kinds of species lived in North America and where, except in a very anecdotal way. And Aldo Leopold, who I'm sure whose name, those of you who are, who are listening know very well, he was one of the first people to do a systematic survey of game and wildlife in North America. And similarly with endangered species around the world, it wasn't until the mid 20th century that we had a very good sense of, you know, as the global scientific community had a good sense of what species were where and which ones were in trouble. Right. So we take that knowledge for granted. And um, I hope to talk, just talk about the progress that's been made. And of course the progress that still needs to be made and, the, and then the potential of networks like NatureServe and how, what an important place they have in the, in the ecosystem of conservation. I, I think that's great. And then, so there's two things you said there that I want to reflect back on. One is uh, you mentioned your book, 
uh, Beloved Beasts, which is coming out in paperback on March 29th. So everyone should line up if they don't already have the hardback. Maybe they need a second copy for the other bedroom or something. (laughs) Makes a good gift for your favorite birdwatcher, biodiversity biodiversity fan. Absolutely. Um, So we're we're excited that the the paperback's coming out so more people will um, be able to read your book. Um, And the other thing you said that I think is really awesome, and it's easy to lose track of because you're right. When you're in the field and you're considering the structure of an ecosystem, it's really easy to say, I don't know this and I don't know that. We don't know how these things are linked and we're not sure about this. But what we do know now compared to 50 years ago when NatureServe was founded, between all of the data that we've gathered and community and citizen science, and now with remote sensing and the genetic analysis and environmental DNA, all these things, we know so much more. Of course, there's still so much yet to learn, but it's important to have that sort of um, sort of optimistic, positive view on where we've come because it's pretty easy to get sort of frustrated when you're out there thinking, oh, if we only knew more. But we do know a lot at this point. Yes, we do. And and we've we've formed, I mean, I think one of I can also talk at great length about the problems in the conservation movement and the oversights, but one of the huge accomplishments is in, I think, in building networks like nature sort of that cross political boundaries, because as we all know, species, we're the only species that pays any attention to political <laughs> boundaries. So we need those networks at at so you know at every geographic level. And that's one of the great things. We- we, we call it biodiversity without boundaries, specifically for that reason, right? right? The plants don't know and the animals don't know these boundaries that we impose that cause us to treat different species in different ways just because you've crossed a state line or a national line. The species don't know anything about that. And so, yeah, yeah. The, the boundaries, they don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. We really need those national and, and international networks um, in order to in order to practice conservation effectively, in order to to have conservation be as meaningful as we all want it to be. Right. Well, we know this is obviously near and dear to your heart and you're passionate about it. Um, Took the time to write a book and been promoting the book, but it's also been out for a little while. So probably you've been working on some other things since then. Uh, what's, What's catching your fancy now? (laughs) <laughs> well, I have gotten a chance to talk a lot about the history of conservation this year, which has been really it's very rewarding. Uh, I'm glad that that the history of conservation has has proven to be as thought provoking to other people as it is to me. When I read the book, I I was I learned so much about it, and you had brought in all sorts of new things that I'd never heard of. So it's it's really is very engaging and intriguing. But Anyway, oh, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really glad to hear that. It's especially, I'm especially happy to hear that from practitioners because uh, I know that I know people know something about the history of conservation, but I think I hope that people find the book rewarding in the sense that it it attempts to put some things together, put put pieces together that we've perhaps all heard about. Um, so, I, and I've continued to write write about the history of conservation. I wrote a, a piece for the Atlantic over the summer about John Muir. And, mm-hmm. and the Sierra Club's uh, struggle with his complicated legacy. Um, Indeed. And I uh, <laughs> I continue to work as an editor at The Atlantic, which um, I, I edit a series called Planet, uh, which many people who are listening may be interested in. That gives me a chance to keep up on what's going on with um, climate change research and climate change adaptation and mitigation. 
around the world. Um, but what I've been thinking about mostly for my next writing project are amphibians, <laughs> which I have oh, really? loved since I was a kid. And um, I'm this, my project is in the very, uh, it's in the primordial stage, I'll call it. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think that if people are familiar with the amphibian conservation, they probably know about amphibian declines. Uh, what they might not know is that some amphibian species are adapting to chytrid fungus and mm -hmm. some are proving to be resistant to certain strains. And given that we are living, still living through our own pandemic, um, that I think that there is a lot to be said and learned about what amphibians have gone through and are still going through. And, and I just, I, I, like I said, I've loved amphibians since I was a kid and I, I love them both for their literal, um, their, their literal qualities as well as their metaphorical qualities. I just love the idea that they are, they're, you know, the ancestors of us all, they've been around for so long. Um, and yet they're, they're also sentinels of, of change. You know, they're, they're vulnerable in ways that we're not. And they, they have a lot to tell us about how we might adapt and how we might survive uh, the changes that are yeah. coming our way. So, so if anyone who's listening has good amphibian stories, please uh, get in touch. I'd, like I said, this project is still take, taking shape in my mind, so I'd love to hear about them. And uh, if they want to get in touch with you, that'd be through your website? Yeah, through my website. It's um, rhymeswithmyhouse.com. Right, I love that. <laughs> because my, because my, last, my last name is difficult to spell, but pretty easy to pronounce. So rhymeswithmyhouse.com. Yes. Rhymes Excellent. So yeah, I look forward to, to reading that because on the Van Humboldt tour, uh, it's been really fun to see uh, more and more amphibians. And as you said, um, seeing them as sentinels or bellwethers for things that may be coming and affecting other species, including humans, uh, is both terrifying and, and encouraging, as you said, because there seem to be sort of some resistance to this fungus that has wiped out literally millions of amphibians across the planet. Yeah. Uh, so, well, great. That's excellent. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us today, and look forward to seeing you at BWB and to uh, passing out uh, paperback copies of Beloved Beasts on March 29th. Likewise, thanks so much, Sean. Pleasure to be here. So, on today's show, we have Michelle Nyhouse, who's the author of the new book Beloved Beasts: Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Um, which is a great title and very sort of horribly near and dear to the heart of those of us here at NatureServe. Uh, Michelle is a project editor for The Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor to the High Country News. Um, her reporting has appeared in publications including National Geographic and The New York Times Magazine, and she received the Cavley Science Journalism Award from the American Association for the Advancement of Science for her, her piece titled Crisis in the Caves, which was about white nose syndrome in bats, which isn't something that we're gonna dig into today, but is something that the Natural Heritage Network talks about a lot because the impact on bats has just been devastating. Um, but anyway, Michelle, thank you for being here. It's great to have you on Conservation Conversations. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Yeah, so a couple of, Things, you know, I like to ask people how they got started in their career and what inspired them to follow the path that they're on. Um, and you've done an amazing amount of work 
uh, educating the public. And one of the things you say is that you're a lapsed biologist. Um, but when I read your writing, I think, well, there's not much lapsed there. Um, she's she's doing the biology still. So I, I'm sort of curious about that expression, but also like what influenced your decision to study biology and then to become more of a science communicator, really? <laughs> well, sometimes I do feel like I'm, I'm cheating because I, I get to go on uh, field expeditions with the same kind of scientists I used to work with, but instead of working alongside them, I get to say, now tell me the story of what you've learned over the last 20 years. <laughs> and uh, I sometimes feel like I, I get to hear the story without having to to put in the, the years of uh, dedicated labor. But I, uh, I do have an undergraduate degree in biology. And then after I graduated from college, I, I spent a few years working as a field assistant on wildlife research projects around the Southwest. So I was never a, a proper bio biologist, but I do have a great affection for biology and biologists and um, a great curiosity about why and how they, they do what they do. Uh, but I have always also loved writing. Uh, and when I, when I graduated from college, I, I had the idea, which I thought was a kind of crazy idea that I would combine the two. And at the time there were not lots of well-known science journalism graduate programs like there are now there was no there were people writing about science of course as there have been for centuries but but there was no clear career path but fortunately i i uh went to work at high country news uh in colorado which covers uh public lands and and uh resource issues around the the American West, and they they kindly trained me in journalism, and I was able to start writing about the issues I cared so much about. It's great, and it's so important. Um, you know, as you know, um, I talked to Andrea Wolf a couple of months ago about yeah. her book on von Humboldt, and so she does um, science education. And of course, von Humboldt, in many ways, was one of the earliest um, science writers uh, as he attempted to pull everything together. So when I'm, I'm so happy that you're out there doing that for us because it is so important and it's one of the biggest challenges. And one of the reasons that we have this podcast is to try and you know, translate the work that we do and uh, into something that's understandable for everybody so that we can have a greater impact. Um, and speaking yeah. of that, um, you obviously, the title of your book or the subtitle of the book talks about extinction. And as you get towards the conclusion of the book, you're talking about the sixth extinction. And I talk about the sixth extinction a lot, but can you, do you have a succinct way of describing the sixth extinction for the listeners? Well, I can give it a shot. It's the, uh, the idea that we have had five mass extinctions on the planet already, including the one that, that killed the dinosaurs and many scientists uh believe given the especially given the dramatic declines in numbers or, or abundance of certain species not necessarily the number of extinctions we're seeing but the declines in actual numbers of individuals they're saying we are we are on the on the brink or we are entering a sixth extinction the difference with this one being that it is primarily caused by human activities and, um, you know, I'm curious how you talk about the sixth extinction in your work with your colleagues and with the public, because the thing that concern it's a it's a very memorable idea. And I have no doubt that it's supported 
by the data, though it is, I should say, it's a bit of a judgment call. Are we entering the sixth extinction or, you know, that, that is a, that is a, um, a, it's not a, a black and white uh, thing. It's, it's what some scientists think we are. Some scientists think we're a bit further off. Yeah. I have no doubt that the underlying data is, is correct and, and is very concerning, but I worry about it as a communication uh problem because I think sometimes it comes across as well if we're in a mass extinction then what's the point you know mm -hmm. this is inevitable um, and yeah. I have a hard time sometimes talking with people about the fact well it could very well the sixth extinction could very well be be already happening and yet we can still save many species that we care about we still need to work to reduce the impact of it in some way mm -hmm. um, yeah and it is as as you're suggesting it's a it's a geologic event that is being caused by human activities you know this will mm -hmm. be visible in the fossil record in the mm -hmm. future um, which is a terrifying idea we um when i talk about the sixth extinction i talk about it in a lot of the same ways that you're just talking about how it's you know comparable or even potentially larger than things that have happened in the past that were natural, um, whether it's an asteroid or volcanism or whatever caused it in the past, um, but that we have an obligation as the cause of this extinction to do something about it. And there's this idea of the rights of species uh, that you mm. talk about in the book. And I, I say, you know, is it, do we have a, a moral obligation to prevent species from going extinct? Is it an aesthetic argument that it's the completeness of the ecosystem that we're protecting. Is it the human health argument that we never know by causing some species to go extinct, how that's going to negatively affect us or alternatively where we're going to find a medicine in some species that has gone extinct. And so there's several different, I think, approaches that you can take to making the argument that we have an obligation to try and protect species. Uh, sometimes at NatureServe, we talk about, um, the last of the least and the best of the rest. And mm -hmm. it's not unlike what you talk about in the book also um, about keeping common things common. And yeah. it's not about like, oh, there's only three of this species left. Let's see if we can recover it. You know, we've lost so much genetic diversity at that point, And we've lost so much of the work that those species do in the ecosystem at that point that, you know, Yes, you're saving them, but are you really saving them? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the natural heritage network that we have is that they absolutely work with species of greatest concern and endangered species, but they often are working with common species as well. Um, and, you know, as we know, many of those common species are managed because they're they're game species. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually you know, sort of going back to the, the book, like, the story of the foundations of conservation and the number of uh, early conservationists who are actually um, shooting, <laughs> trapping and killing enormous numbers of individuals of species, even species that they knew were already endangered is quite astounding. Um, you know, the sort of the, the person that you hang the story on, um, Hockaday is interesting in that regard. Oh my gosh. Hornaday, he, right? Hornaday yes, yeah, William right. Hornaday was was full of well, the the whole story of conservation, of modern conservation is full of ironies, but but Hornaday in 
Hornaday personifies most of them. And yeah, I mean, he was a taxidermist and a trophy hunter uh, who, you know, unlike most of his contemporaries, was really shocked and, and appalled by the decline of the Plains bison and 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 very especially unusually was determined to stop it was determined to protect the the bison but his very paradoxical reaction was to rush out to montana and shoot several dozen of the last remaining bison because in the you know in his moral universe and in in the moral universe of the time he he believed that if he was able to build this dramatic diorama of of the majestic bison on the plains and and put it in the Smithsonian that millions of people would see it and they would also be moved to protect the bison. And he may have been to some extent correct uh, that what the the display he built was a huge sensation. And I think it it cemented the the majesty of the bison in many people's minds who who otherwise never would have seen anything close to a living bison. It, it does seem that um, the display did actually have some effect, especially when you think about the people that he interacted with um, who are, you know, threaded throughout the story of conser- the modern conservation movement. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it is it is shocking even later in later in the conservation movement. There are plenty of ornithologists who who loved birds and loved them so much <laughs> that they could not resist <laughs> shooting many more than they should have. And uh, I, I don't think we have evidence that that any single ornithologist actually drove a species extinct, but but some of them came dangerously close. Uh, fortunately, we have all kinds of fancy uh, lenses and optics that allow us to see uh, species up close and, and satisfy that urge. But uh, yeah, as, as I say in the book, the conservation is full of people who did the right things for the wrong reasons and the wrong things for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And that you, you mentioned the moral universe of the time and then right things for wrong reasons. Um, and just briefly wanted to touch on this topic that's coming up a lot these days. Um, as we think about social justice, and that is uh, the names of some of the species, both common names and the scientific names. Uh, the one that um, actually came up relatively recently when I was on a birding trip was uh, people were talking about the long-tailed duck, which used to be called the old squaw. Mm. And, uh, the name was changed because it was an, an offensive name. Um, and there are plenty of other examples where uh, inappropriate names are used um, or people are referenced in mm-hmm. the name of a, of a species. Um, you know, one that <laughs> there's no there's no issue with this one right now, uh, and I don't think there ever will be. But there's a species out there that's named after one of our uh, former employees. Are you kidding? Pine's ground plum, and uh, uh-huh. Milo Pine is a fantastic guy, and he you know, <laughs> described the species and all of this. Um, and so, but there's plenty of other examples of things named after individuals where we worry about continuing to use that. Um, and I just curious about your, cause you've, you've gone back and you've looked at people in their time and then tried to bring that story forward to today in a much more sort of modern way of looking at things like with these conservancies in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. like, how do you, how do you think about this now? That issue? Yeah, the 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 naming issue is very interesting to me because it's it it 
actually it may sound like a sort of performative thing or you know window dressing um we're just we're just changing things on the surface but it actually goes quite deep into the the power structures within science because who gets to quote unquote discover a species who gets to name it is you know is is a long running uh argument historical issue in in uh in science and um i should be clear the discussions we're having now are mostly about changing the common names of species. So changing mm-hmm. how people communicate about them every day, but there's also, you know, issues with who gets to give a, a species a scientific name and who gets to, um, who gets to be, be honored with a, with a species, with a, the scientific name of a species. And, um, you know, it, it, it does remind me very much of the, the public discussion we're having about monuments and who gets to have a physical monument to them. And um, there's a, a, a columnist for The Guardian who wrote a, a piece recently about how, well, we should, we should just really move on from this idea of building statues to people, which was provocation. I don't expect we're going to stop building statues to people, but he was really questioning the whole idea of like, why do we honor individuals in this way is it really a good idea of remembering even perfect people and there are very few perfect people in the universe so you know it's it's really um may perhaps we should rethink how we are remembering people in general perhaps we shouldn't be naming entire species after a single individual and hoping that uh that later generations don't discover deep flaws in that individual that we that we uh, didn't know about at the time or didn't recognize at the time. Um, mm. So I think it's a very worthwhile discussion. And, and again, it has a lot to do with power structures in science and then and who's involved in in science, who's, who gets to participate in those power structures. Yeah, it's it, I'm, it's so great that we're having the conversation um, it's too bad we didn't start it sooner. And the whole Linnaean system and who gets to name things is Actually, it's both complex sociologically, but it's also very complex just in terms of straight science. And it's one of the big challenges that nature sort of faces all the time. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Different states will call the same species different things, even in the scientific name, never mind the common name, and trying to keep it all straight. And the implications for conservation are significant. If one state says two or three species are actually just one species, that species may not be of concern, but if it's three separate species, you might have three species that are of concern. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the actual science behind what things are called and how they're grouped is also really important, but it's a totally different issue. <laughs> it's less about social justice, yes. more about less about social yeah. less about social justice, but full of human decisions, right? I right. I I started my book with a chapter about Linnaeus and his his personal story, but also his the system he developed that we still use for for giving species scientific names, because I wanted people to understand that this thing we call species, this this unit that is in many ways the currency of conservation, the fundamental unit of conservation, as E.O. Wilson put it, is there is a reality to it, but it's also the boundaries of it are are constructed by humans mm-hmm. and um and that there's a lot of uncertainty in it. I think sometimes people think, oh, well, the classification for 
species is is a scientific thing. It's cut and dried. You you know you recognize the species. You name it. And as you're saying, you know, there's all kinds of of judgment calls that get made in there about what a species is. Is it is this a different species? Is it a subspecies? And and sometimes the decisions people make don't match up and cause a lot of confusion. Absolutely. Um, and and make a huge difference to conservation. I really enjoyed the chapter on Linnaeus because. You sort of learn about him in biology 101, but you don't mm -hmm. learn about him, right? You learn about this system and uh, actually humanizing him a little bit was, I, th I thought, really interesting. He's a fascinating guy. I mean, yeah. who would take on a project like that? You know, <laughs> even even hundreds of years ago when we didn't know there were as many species as there were today, we still we knew enough to know that it was an overwhelming task. But Linnaeus had the ego and the ambition <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to take on this this challenge of naming every species on Earth. Well, you also talk in the book about um, doing a search, uh, I think, in a database on the word biodiversity and biological diversity and how few references there were or none in the 1982 compared to now. Well, imagine having to do that research before there were computers and it was all on paper. And then in Linnaeus's day, you had to go to the place. You couldn't just call mm -hmm. somebody or have somebody email you a bunch of records, <laughs> never mind a database. And so, yeah, it's incredibly daunting to imagine that he had the, the, the hubris to, do, to say that he could do it, but it's great that he got it started for us. And he didn't like to travel. <laughs> I mean, I love that, you know, he was a Swedish biologist who he liked to be outside, but he didn't really, he traveled some in his youth, but he basically liked to stay at home. And so later in life, he sent out his, his adventurous students, you know, to, to what we called the new world then, and, and they would bring back specimens and then he would decide whether or not they were new species. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, another thing that you've written about a bit is um, climate change. And of course, this all is part and parcel, um, the climate change and the effect on the sixth extinction and on species and ecosystems. Um, so I just was thinking about climate change in general and how it lays on top of this, because it wasn't really, um, I mean, we knew about it, you know, in the in the 70s and the 80s, but I don't think people thought it was going to be quite what it is now um, that we're actually observing the impacts um, and the predictions that we're um, seeing right now. And I just wonder what you think about with the, as you look at the history of conservation, if you've thought at all about the history of like how climate change overlays on that and the, the dynamics of the science and the, and the policy of climate change, is that something you've, Dug, dug into it all? Yeah, very much so. And I mean, one of my, I had a lot of motivations for writing this book, but one of my motivations was a sense that uh, there's an enormous interest uh, as well there should be among younger generations in climate activism. Uh, but conservation has it doesn't get as much of as much attention from youth activists as climate change, and I mean there are very understandable reasons for that. Uh, but I I hoped to show that conservation is is still in, incredibly important and and so intertwined with climate. Uh, and I, I hope to show that that 
sometimes I think there's a sense among young climate activists that the two things are 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 in conflict. That that conservation, in fact, especially, can sometimes conflict with social justice, which it certainly has in the past. But I think there are ways in which it can promote social justice, and so I hope to show that there are ways that we can overcome that history and then and also serve climate stabilization, serve social justice, and serve conservation. Um, I was really heartened by the the IPBS report that came out uh, in early June, uh, pointing out that that conservation and climate stabilization do have to work together and, and emphasizing that there are some climate solutions that don't work particularly well for conservation and that we should be careful to avoid those. We should be careful to choose solutions that promote them both and that they're out there. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, I think, I think it's possible to do both, but I think it's also possible to, um, to work at cross, cross purposes. So I think it's, it's very important for us to choose our path carefully. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to um, wanted to ask you a sort of personal philosophical question, and that is, you you have this great opportunity to sort of pick big projects to work on and to to write about them, and you just described sort of some personal uh, motivation for doing that. And I'm curious, sort of on the grand scheme, on the big arc. You know, if you're if you're putting the the period on the last page of the <laughs> the last book that you'll ever write, <laughs> which will be sometime long in the future, um, what will you what what will you hope that body of work will encompass, and and like what will the legacy of that body of work be? Mm. Um. Well, that's good. It's good to think about. It's not something I think about every day. But I do think about it. Would be it. paralyzing if you did. It would be paralyzing <laughs> to think about it every day. But but when you uh, you writing books, I think does give you a sense that that there there is an an object that will live on after you. So you uh, <laughs> it it does come to mind sometimes. Um, I I've always really loved the process that that we were talking about earlier of of translating um, translating complicated things into plain language. Um, and I, I, I especially love uh, translating complicated things, not not to as in my one of my least favorite phrases, not to quote unquote dumb them down, but to um, to uh, introduce them to people who are extremely intelligent and curious, but just not specialists. Um, so I. I like the idea, or I like that my goal, I think, is to communicate the complexity of, of some of these problems and some of these solutions that people like you are working on, um, but do it in a way that's digestible to someone who just doesn't think about these issues every day. They, they're thinking about other, <laughs> perhaps equally complicated issues, but they're not thinking about these particular issues. So I think my overall goal is to communicate complexity to a broad audience. I mean, conservation on so many, so many levels is about protecting complexity, pr protecting the complexity of our ecosystems and, and our, our human societies. And if I can communicate the importance of that, um, then I'll have, I'll, I'll have um, accomplished something I'm proud of. 
That's, that's fantastic. And it's, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, accounting is very complicated and hard to understand. And you need somebody to translate it for you. And the same is true with a lot of these different science topics. And uh, yeah, it's not that people aren't smart enough to get it. It's just not their jargon and their, their experience. But having someone like you out there who is doing that translation is incredibly valuable because we really do need everybody working on these problems of things like conservation and climate change and people engaged and, and really understanding the science because in my view, you don't get to say, I believe in climate change. That's sort of like saying, I believe in gravity, you know, right. physics and chemistry tell us that this is happening and that this is real. And you can debate how it's going to actually affect the world and what it's going to do to ecosystems and things like that. But the fact that it is happening is not something that's a question. And so having people understand that because they can finally understand the science because of somebody who does a great job of explaining it like you out there. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And I, that, well, thank you. And, and I, I mean, I think that what you're doing is, you are helping tell a more complex story about conservation um, by emphasizing the protection of ecosystems and showing how species fit into those ecosystems. Because I think for too long, uh, conservation organizations have leaned on the, you know, leaned on their flagship species and said, okay, well, give, give your $25 to protect the panda. And, you know, while, while conserva professional conservationists know very well that it's about what much more than that, but I think there's sometimes a fear of, oh, well, we can't make it too complicated because, Will confuse people or alienate people or or people won't be as attached to you know they won't be as, as attached to the hellbender as they are to the the giant panda you know uh and i love the hellbender but um and uh but i think so part of the challenge is you know unfortunately though we might love to do so we can't just open people's heads and pour information and in. we have to think of ways that 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 not only are, make sense, but that people will truly connect with on an emotional level. So I think part of my challenge as a, as a writer and, and your challenge as a conservationist is, is uh, finding the stories about ecosystems and about less, you know, traditionally charismatic species that, that speak to people in some, mm -hmm. on some level and, uh, you know, help them not only understand the complexity, but but really want to understand the complexity and, and want to protect that complexity. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And in the sort of shameless self-promotion category, <laughs> uh, the Van Humboldt tour that is underway right now. Yeah, Van Humboldt. Has really done, uh, has really been in a lot of ways about ecosystems. Um, spent several days on the trip in um, longleaf pine ecosystems. And it was less about, the pine trees or the red cocated woodpeckers it was about this ecosystem and how it used to have this huge extent and now it's reduced and in uh, tennessee we went to the cedar glades which is this very specific habitat type and yes there are endangered species on it but it's because of the habitat and the ecosystem and the same was true in uh, west virginia where we went to an area that was about the habitat types that were being protected and less about the individual species and it really, you're right, it's really, really important because in the complexity of how all of this fits together and then protecting the ecosystem so that the species are in their natural habitat 
Um, it's it's one of the great things that uh, NatureServe with the vegetation classification system that we have that's incorporated into some federal rulemaking and things. Um, it's a it's it's a great thing that we have access to here uh, for conservation use. Yeah, and it, it um, as you were talking about earlier when we were talking about the sixth extinction, there are so many people's reasons for conservation are also complex. And I think, you know, the information that you provide allows people to to find those on their own. I mean, there's a long running debate in conservation biology about why do we protect species? Is it because they're they have intrinsic value or is it because they have instrumental value or, you know, are we protecting nature for itself or or for humans? And I always am confused and frustrated by that debate because I think, well, both, right? You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I mean, we're, we're part, because we're part, it's complex because we're part of what we're trying to protect. And, and so we can, I think we can have many motivations. We can have, you know, and we can have many motivations for protecting different species and different ecosystems, all of them quite valid. Some of them self-interested, some of them not self-interested. Um, and some more pressing than others, but but uh, we can. There are there are many ways for us to relate to and be concerned about these different these different places, and and it's fine if if they vary, yeah. <laughs> you know. And if, if we have loyalties to one over the other, that that's that's part of the complexity of conservation. Multiple paths into it, whether yeah. you're you know, Ducks Unlimited or Trout Unlimited, or you're um, with a more traditional conservation organization, um, if your interest is, you know, bird watching or anything. Um, I think uh, a lot of people who go out into nature to uh, quote unquote hunt and fish are actually going out to meditate and they just are afraid to say they're going out to meditate. <laughs> so they bring a fishing pole with them. <laughs> they may never actually cast a line. But <laughs> I would not be surprised. And I would, I mean, friends of mine who have grown up hunting have talked about how, you know, it was really, I'm not a hunter myself, but I have known plenty of people who who do it and, and have, have done it growing up. And, and it really was about family time or time, time in the woods. And, and you read about Aldo Leopold, who was perhaps one of the most famous hunter conservationists and, and his dad, who was not, had no scientific background, who just happened to have a, a, a uh, strong ethical belief that that people should limit the amount of the number of ducks they shot in a day mm -hmm. sometimes made a point of going out in the woods without his gun and taking his kids along just to show them that that wasn't really the point right of what they were doing that's, yeah that's wonderful well, on that note, I think we will um, wrap up today, although I think I could probably talk to you for the rest of the day if you would tolerate me. Yeah, likewise. Um, it's fun to chat about um, what you're doing on the ground. It's uh, it, it does remind me of of Aldo Leopold did a did a game survey early in his career that was that, you know, at a time when people didn't know what was out there. And so he did much what you're doing, you know, traveling around the Midwest, talking to people, asking them what they were seeing. And and it was one of the first uh, one of the first real records that we had of of what was at what what, what was at risk. So 
and, and what it gave people an idea of what needed to be done to protect habitat, which people hadn't been thinking about until then, until the 1930s. So you're carrying on a fine tradition. Well, um, with that compliment in mind, um, <laughs> for, for me and for NatureServe and for our entire Natural Heritage Network, I wanna thank you for, for that and thank you for all that you do to uh, get people inspired and to make a difference in the world. So thank you, Michelle and I house for all that you do and for being on Conservation Conversations. Thanks so much, Sean, and safe travels. Thanks Best wishes much. to Von Humboldt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.